Exodus 34. So two places today. We're going to do a little bit of work, a little bit of Bible study. Would that be okay today? Exodus 34, we'll start right there. And we are studying uh, this passage. And as I said last week, Exodus 34 is going to be base camp for us. This is where uh, we are going to be spending uh, the majority of our time as we study these verses. Uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, is the self-revelation of God. This is God describing his character, describing his nature, describing who he is. And I love this section, these verses, because this is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. And so the biblical authors circle back to Exodus 34, 6, and 7 uh, more than any other passage. And so uh, this is uh, a significant passage for us to understand. And uh, last week we learned God's name, Yahweh, the great I am, I am that I am. And we study the first two descriptors of his name, that he is merciful and that he is gracious. Aren't you thankful that he is merciful and that he is gracious with us? I'm thankful for that. So we're going to pick it up here, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Has everybody found Nahum by now? Nahum, okay. Did you have to use the table of contents? That's okay. That's okay. That's good. For those of you that have an iPhone, you can just type it in. But we're going to start in Exodus 34. Verse number six, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Everybody say long suffering. Leave it in the chat today, long suffering. We're gonna talk today about how our God is long suffering and hold your place there in Exodus. And now let's turn over to Nahum. If you're there at Nahum, would you say amen? If you found Nahum online, can you go ahead and leave me a thumbs up in the comments if you're there? Nahum chapter one. Notice verse number two. It says, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Watch this. The Lord is slow to anger and in great power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the clouds are the dust of his feet. Skip to verse number seven. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. I'm thankful today that the Lord is good and that he is slow to anger. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. God, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you today. God, thank you for uh, the amazing uh, dream team that is here this morning and that was here yesterday for our team link and uh, that we're serving the Lord together. Thank you for every uh, person in the room today and every person that is watching online. And God, I pray that today we can lean into this text and we can understand who you are on a deeper level. And God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, give me the words to say that would be helpful and beneficial for us. And uh, Lord, I pray that we can have a better understanding of uh, this attribute of your long suffering. And uh, we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, 
How many of you struggle with patience? Anybody like that? Struggle with patience online? Let us know if you struggle a little bit with patience. And uh, I, I, I think sometimes I struggle a little bit with patience. And uh, the other day we were at uh, my house and, and uh, my oldest daughter, Liv, was doing some homework. And if you know my daughter, Liv, she is a perfectionist. She wants things to be done a certain way and uh, she wants it to be perfect. And she was working on some homework and she was writing the letter C. And uh, part of her penmanship uh, class there in first grade was to, to write the letter C over and over again. And I noticed I was watching her that she would write the letter C and then she would just erase it. Then she would write the letter C and then she would just erase it. And it looked fine. It was totally good. It was a perfectly acceptable C in my opinion. Uh, but she was frustrated and she kept on erasing it. And so I went over there and I said, Liv, uh, you're taking a long time. Uh, this looks good. You have, to, uh, you have to understand when it's good enough to move on. And uh, this looks great. And so uh, she kept on erasing. And I was watching her. And she, just, she couldn't, she couldn't uh, help herself. She kept on erasing. So I finally took the pencil away. And I took the eraser out of the pencil. And I gave her back the pencil. And I said, OK, uh, now no more erasing. You're going to just have to uh, do this homework. And so uh, she was kind of frustrated. And I walked out of the room. And I came back in. And Liv went and found another pencil with another eraser. And she was still erasing. And I was getting frustrated at that point. So I went over there, and in a moment of righteous indignation, I believe, I took that pencil and I broke it in half. And I gave her the, pencil, the side with no eraser. And I said, okay, uh, here you go. Uh, you got to finish your work. I was getting uh, frustrated uh, at her level of perfection and OCD. And I said, hey, uh, we need to move on. Uh, patience, we know, is a virtue. But it's a virtue that is often very difficult to uphold, right? And uh, we know that we are supposed to be patient. The Bible tells us that over and over again. The Bible says in Romans 12 or somewhere 11, uh, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient. Everybody say patient. patient. Leave it in the chat today. Patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. And so we know that we are uh, supposed to be patient. But our ultimate example and our ultimate uh, template for patience is actually found in the character of God. That the God that we worship is patient with us. And I love in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, this self-revelation of who God is when, when God passed before Moses and said, this is who I am. I love that he says he's merciful and that he's gracious. But then he says this word, long-suffering. Long-suffering. Now, that's not a word that we typically uh, use on a normal basis, long-suffering. But it's not uh, a difficult word to understand the definition and the meaning. The Hebrew word is arake. And it literally means a long nose or long nostrils. And so God is saying that he has a long nose. What, what, you know, what does that mean? God has a long nose. Well, uh, the word picture is when you get angry, your nose gets, your nose gets red, it gets hot. And so if you had a long nose, it took a long time for you to get angry, for you to get upset. And so this idea of long suffering, it, it, it's this, it's this interchangeable phrase. In fact, many uh, uh, other places it's translated slow to anger, that our God is slow to anger. The Bible says in, in Psalm 103, verse number 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And so this was a quotation from Exodus 34, 16, 7, uh, that God is slow to anger. Now, there are two sides to this that we have to understand. God is slow to anger. He's slow. This means that he is patient with us, that he gives us opportunities, that he gives us a chance after chance to repent and to make it right because he's slow to anger. But he's also slow to anger, uh, that God can and does get angry. We have to recognize and understand today that we worship a holy God, and God does get angry. His anger is slow, but it's sure. Now, 
uh, I believe that uh, all of us need to hear this message today. Maybe today you need to hear that God is slow to anger. You need to hear that God is slow to anger because maybe you grew up thinking that God is always mad, that God is always out to try to get you, that he's just waiting for you to mess up. He doesn't want you to have any fun and and that life is just supposed to be miserable when you worship God. And you need to know today that God is slow to anger, that he wants to show you his grace and his love and his mercy and that he has opportunities for you and he wants you to be able to uh, begin again. Is anybody thankful today that God is slow to anger? He is merciful and patient with us. He's got a plan for your life. He's slow to anger. But maybe others of you today need to hear that God is slow to anger. Because maybe you have this false idea that since God is so patient and since God is so gracious that that I can just kind of live however I want. I can just kind of do whatever I want and and God's just going to forgive me anyway. So I can just kind of live and do whatever it is that I please. And you have to know today that God is slow to anger. that, That God is holy and that he is just and that there is a judgment day that is coming. God is slow to anger. Now, you might think, well, I don't know if I can really worship a God that gets angry. And I don't know if I can really believe in a God that gets upset and that gets angry. And I would say, actually, I think, I think you can. Not only do I think you can, I think you actually long for a God that gets angry. Yeah. See, when we consider all the evil that's taking place in the world today, when we consider child prostitution, rape, slavery, genocide, murder, terrorism. There's something within us that says that's not the way that it's supposed to be. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. We know that we long for justice. We long for the wrongs to be made right. And see, what we have to understand today is that God is holy and that God is a God of justice and that God is a God of judgment. And sometimes the only appropriate response for the evil that's taking place in our world is anger. So God is slow to anger. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth uh, who hold the truth in righteousness. See, God wants his children to walk in the truth and to discover the truth, but sin and evil blinds us to that truth. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, Be ye angry and sin not. And so we are commanded to uh, be angry yet without sin. And so it's possible to have anger without sin, righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Now, a lot of times the anger of man, uh, we get angry uh, based on a wounded ego. Someone hurts our feelings, someone upsets us, and so we get angry. Well, the anger of God is based out of his great love for his children. It's a holy, perfect, righteous anger. Acts chapter 17, verse number 30 says this, and at the times of this ignorance, God winked at. He winked at. And uh, uh, that phrase means he overlooked. He's being patient. He, he allowed this to happen. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. See, God will bring judgment. And there will come a time when God says, enough, no more killing, no more raping, no more enslaving, no more injustice. And every man and woman will give an account before a holy God. So God is slow to anger. Now, this brings us to uh, Nahum. Everybody say Nahum. Nahum. Leave it in the chat today, Nahum. And uh, as we unpack this idea of 
uh, God's holiness and, and uh, his long suffering, we're going to look to the prophet uh, Nahum. And uh, uh, Nahum quotes Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And so the reason why we're going to kind of study these passages in tandem today is because Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is our base camp. Nahum, the prophet, quotes Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Now, if you're wondering who in the world is Nahum, what in the world is the story of Nahum all about, here's a really easy way to remember it. Nahum is the sequel to the book of Jonah. And so Jonah, if it were a blockbuster movie, Jonah would be part one. Part number two would be Nahum. And so Nahum is part number two. Now, we know what happened in the book of Jonah, right? Uh, Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, and he preaches a revival there. And uh, what happens? There's a great revival. People are saved. Uh, people turn, turn from their idolatry, turn from their wickedness, and they turn to God, there's this great revival. Jonah actually gets upset. We talked about that last week because God was merciful towards them. But now when we come to the book of Nahum, fast forward about 150 to 200 years, and the city of Nineveh and the Assyrians had completely turned their back on God yet again. And uh, this revival was long gone, and uh, uh, the Assyrians had actually uh, started to to worship idolatry again. They actually captured the city of Samaria. Uh, uh, They actually uh, seized Judah. They took uh, the king of Judah. Uh, the king of Israel, they took him, they put a hook in his nose, they drug him through the streets in embarrassment, and so they were oppressing God's people. Uh, They were uh, turning to their wickedness once again, and the book of Nahum is all about this prophet, God's prophet saying, okay, enough is enough. God is going to step in and put an end to this oppression. Is everybody tracking with me so far? And so that's what uh, the book of Nahum is all about, and in this book and in these first seven verses, what we see is uh, what what a patient and long-suffering God looks like. And I believe that there are four implications for us today of a long-suffering God, okay? If you're with me, would you say amen? Amen. Four implications of a patient and long-suffering God. Number one today, I want you to see this. We must worship God exclusively. We must worship him exclusively. Now, notice verse number two. Verse two says this. God is, what's the next word? Jealous. God is jealous. Now, does that make anyone feel a little uncomfortable this morning? God is jealous. And uh, uh, this is an adjective that a lot of people trip over. And it's like, oh, I don't want to talk about uh, this. And what does this mean, that God is jealous? In fact, Oprah Winfrey once said that, that it was the jealousy of God that caused her to turn away from biblical Christianity. She said, I don't know if I can believe in, in a God that gets jealous. And so we have to understand, what does this mean, that God is jealous? Well, let me first tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that God is envious. Because God cannot be envious. He is unmatched. He is unrivaled in power. And so God cannot be envious. He has no equal. He has no uh, rival. And so God's jealousy is not uh, petty. God's jealousy is not of envy. And uh, jealousy, jealousy in our lives, it is a sin if it means being envious of something that somebody has and we want it for ourselves. We want to covet after it. But jealousy is a virtue if it means cherishing what we have and wanting to protect it. Okay, let me explain. And so I I love my three children with everything that's in me. I love my kids. And I want to do everything I can to protect them, show love, train them up in the way that they should go and walk in the Lord. And I love them. And if some other man were to come into our lives and say, you know what, Uh, I, I want to take those kids from you. 
I, I want those kids. Now, they're no longer your kids. They're my kids. I'm going to take your children from you, and they're going, to be, they're going to be my kids. Well, that would provoke something within me. That would invoke something within me. It would be a righteous anger. It would be a jealousy because those are not his children. Those are my children. And out of love, there would be a holy jealousy uh, for my children. And that's how God is jealous for us. He loves us with a great love that is unmatched. He is our heavenly father, and he wants us to worship him exclusively. God is a jealous God because he loves us. The Bible says in Exodus 23, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And so God deserves exclusivity in worship. Now, there's a lot of different uh, worldviews. There's, there's a polytheism that says that there are many gods, right? Uh, many gods, uh, uh, nature is God, the sun is God, the stars are God, the trees are God, uh, many different gods. There is universalism, and this is what's very popular and prevalent in our culture today, universalism, which says uh, there's most likely one God, but there are a lot of paths that lead to that God. And so there's probably one God, but you can kind of take whichever route you want to get, uh, you want to take to that God. And that's why today there are over 4,200 religions in the world today. That's a lot of options, a lot of paths, a lot of roads. R.C. Sproul, he said this, in the culture of pluralism, the only thing that cannot be tolerated is a claim to exclusivity, a claim to exclusivity. And I want you to know what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse number six, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus did not say he is one of the ways. He did not say that he was an option. He didn't even just say he was the most important way. He said he is the way, the truth, and the life. See, we must worship God with exclusivity. He alone is worthy and deserving of our worship. Now, that is something that we would readily profess with our lips, but is it something that we practice with our lives? We would say that God is the only way, and we believe in the one true God. Jesus is God. He is Yahweh incarnate. We, we say that, but are we practicing it? Because Paul Tripp said this, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something that we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those that worship and those that don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. And anytime we elevate something in our lives into the place that God deserves, we have taken that thing and we have turned it into something that we worship. Now, remember, he is a jealous God. He alone deserves our worship. He wants, to, he wants us to worship him exclusively. And when a sports game is elevated to the position that God deserves, that has become an idol. When a job or a career or a relationship is elevated and we, it consumes our thoughts, it consumes our time, that thing has become an idol in our lives. And if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll take an innocent thing and we'll turn it into an idolatrous thing. We'll take something that is innocent, and this is a good thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with it, but we've elevated it to the wrong position in our lives, and that innocent thing has become an idolatrous thing, and it has taken the spot that only God deserves in our lives. Luke chapter 4, verse 8 says this, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and watch this, and him only shalt thou serve. Him only. It's not just, you know, a little bit of Jesus here, and then a little bit of religion over here, and a little bit of what I want to do, and a little bit of this. No, Jesus deserves our exclusive worship. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we have to remember today that he is a jealous God. 
And so Nahum, he's writing to the people of Israel, and really he's writing to encourage them. And he's saying, hey, God's going to take care of this. And just remember that he is a jealous, holy God. Now, Nahum reminds us to worship God exclusively. This leads us to our second thought today, number two. We must also await his perfect justice. And so when it comes to a God that is long-suffering, slow to anger, we know that we, we um, are to uh, await his uh, perfect justice. Uh, we are to worship him exclusively. We are to await his perfect justice. Notice verse number two. First, we saw that God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious, and the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserveth wrath for his enemies. Now, remember, uh, uh, God is going to avenge his enemies, it says, because he's holy, because they've been oppressing Israel, and he's going to make the wrong right. This is something that we see in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And so what Nahum, this is what Nahum is saying to the children of Israel. He's saying, hey, uh, God is going to bring about vengeance. God is going to make this right. He's going to bring about justice because of the oppression that is taking place. By the way, aren't you thankful that God is a God of holiness and a God of justice? And he says, I will make this right. I will bring this uh, to pass. Now, here's the point that I want you to see. We can read verse number two. Man, God is furious. He's going to bring vengeance. But here's the point. Please don't miss it. Here it is. He waited 150 years before he brought it about. Yes, he was going to bring vengeance. Yes, he was going to make the wrongs right. Yes, he was going to take care of Nineveh, and he was going to bring Israel through it. But he waited 150 years to do it. Why? Because he's slow to anger. That yes, God can get upset, but he is slow to anger. He wanted to give them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to make it right. See, if we were God... If we were God and, and our family was being oppressed and we were being wronged and, and our children were being taken captive, we wouldn't have even sent Jonah in the first place. But God not only sent Jonah, he sent Jonah, he sent a revival, and then they turned from God and he gave them year after year after year, opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance. Why? Because the God that we worship is long-suffering, because he is slow to anger and he is patient and his heart is always for repentance and for restoration. And so he waited and he waited. Now, this, this makes Yahweh so unique. Because in ancient culture, all the gods and the goddesses, uh, they would fly off the handle. They had a temper. Uh, how many of you uh, can have a temper from time to time? Would you be willing to admit that? Okay. And, uh, and uh, in ancient culture, uh, these gods would be known to just fly off the handle. And in fact, there was a legend of a Hittite god. This is a true legend. You can look it up. This is what some people believe, that there was a god named uh, Tele, uh, Telepinu, and he woke up one morning, and he put his boots on the wrong feet, and that made him furious. And so because of that, uh, he sent a plague throughout the whole earth, okay? And uh, because he put his boots, how many of you are like, I've had a day like that? Yeah, I would send a plague to the whole earth. And uh, this was, this is one of the gods in the ancient culture. This was commonplace for gods to kind of have a hot temper and just take care of their enemies. And that's why uh, the biblical authors were often frustrated with God uh, that he took so long to take care of his enemies. In fact, one of the most common and repeated prayers in the Bible is, how long? How long, God, are you going to let this go on? 
How long, God, are you going to let uh, these enemies prosper? And what we have to understand is that God is perfect in his holiness, and we must await his perfect justice. Deuteronomy 32, verse number 4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth. And without iniquity, just and right is he. He is just. Exodus 3 Uh, Verse 7 says this, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God says, I know that you've been being mistreated. I know that you're going through a difficult season. I know that it seems like the enemy is prospering. But can I tell you today that even when we can't make sense of it, God is always in control, and he is always just, and we must learn to await his perfect justice. He says, I know what's going on. Oswald Chambers said this, God will bring us back in countless ways to the same point over and over again. He never, try, he never tires of bringing us back to that one point until we learn the lesson because his purpose is to produce the finished product and maybe a problem arising from our impulsive nature, but again and again with the most persistent patience, God has brought us back to that one particular point. He is patient with us. This brings us to our third thought. Number three, we must not overlook his power. Are you still with me today? We must not overlook his power. Notice verse number three. The Lord is slow to anger. He's long-suffering. And watch this, and in great power. Don't mistake God's patience for his weakness. He says he's slow to anger, but he's also great in power. Verse 4, he rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth in Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him and, his, and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. And so what is he doing? He, Nahum is reminding the people of the power of God. Now, a little bit of context here would be helpful. Why, why do you think Nahum, this prophet, is interjecting the power of God here? Well, the city of Nineveh that was oppressing God's people, they had this impenetrable and invulnerable city that they were very proud of. They had walls that were 100 feet high. They had a moat that surrounded the city that was uh, 60 feet deep. And, and, uh, and so it would be very difficult for the Israelites to kind of picture, how are we ever going to get victory over the city of Nineveh? They're powerful. They're strong. And I love what... Nahum does here. He's saying, hey, I know that the enemy looks great. I know that they're oppressing you right now, and it seems like you would never be able to conquer Nineveh, but let me just remind you about how great and how powerful our God is. Hey, never mistake his patience for his weakness. Can I just remind you today that we worship a powerful God, that he created the heavens and the earth, and the same God that created the heavens and the earth and sent his son to die on the cross, and the power of God raised him from the dead. That same power is available to us, and Not only is God's power displayed in creation, his power is delivered to us today. The power of God is available to us. The Bible says in Psalm 89, verse number 11, the heavens are thine, the earth also is thine, as for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them, Acts 1, 8, but ye shall receive power. Everybody say power. Power. Even in the chat today, power. You shall receive power. Man, this is such an encouraging and needed truth in our culture today that we have access to the power of God. There was a show that, that was on the Disney Channel. I remember when I was growing up, it was a show called The Jersey. Anybody ever seen this show, The Jersey? Okay. Um, some of you are like, nope. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, 
this is what the show was about, I'll tell you. It was about these kids that really like sports and athletics, and there was this magical, powerful jersey. And whenever you put this magical jersey on, you would all of a sudden inherit the abilities of some great athletes. Is it ringing a bell now? Yeah, Dakota's like, yes. And, uh, and so what would happen is these kids, they would put on this jersey, and then all of a sudden they'd be able to throw a football like Tom Brady, and uh, they'd be able to do all these you know, uh, great things as soon as they put that jersey on. Here's what I want you to know today, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been clothed with the righteousness of God, and you have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit can empower you and enable you to do things that you would never be able to do without him. Hey, you have access to the power of God. And so I know that the problems are big today. I know that sometimes we can be overwhelmed, but never forget the power that lives within you. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and it's available. Nahum says, hey, look at how powerful God is. He is slow to anger, but great in power. Our God is powerful, and his power is available to us today. Luke 24, 49 says, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. So thankful that we have access to God's power. Now, this leads us to our fourth and final thought today. And, and our worship team, you can come up. But the fourth thought is this. We must rest in his goodness. We must rest in his goodness. Do you have one more thought in you today? Notice verse number six. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? Think about those two questions. Think about it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? Can I tell you the answer? No one. None of us. It's a sobering question. None of us in our own strength. Our righteousness, the Bible says in Isaiah, is filthy rags. We can't stand before a holy God. We can't survive his anger, his indignation. C.S. Lewis told an interesting anecdotal story one time where he talked about how uh, this group of people that were in hell, they were able to take a bus ride to heaven. And he was just using it as an illustration, so picture it with me. And he says these, these people that were in hell were able to take a bus ride to heaven. They went up to heaven and he said, okay. The bus driver said, you can go and enjoy heaven and then you gotta be at the, back at the bus at four o'clock. So, so they went, they walked around heaven. They came back. They were all on the bus at four o'clock. And he said, if anyone wants to stay in heaven and not go back to hell, uh, you can stay. And none of them wanted to stay. Why would none of them want to stay? And it's because they realized that they could not stand before a holy God without the forgiveness of sins. They said, we can't even stay if we wanted to. Because the only way that you can stand before a holy God is to have his righteousness placed on your account. The only way that you can stand before a holy God and the only way that we can survive and thrive through judgment is by saying, you know what? I am a sinner. I am weak. I need a savior. And that is why Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for my sins so that we can stand before a holy God and we can have that positional holiness that is imputed to our account. Is anybody thankful for what Jesus did for us so that we can boldly approach the throne of grace so that we can go to heaven? We can stand before him. Not because of us, but because of what Jesus did for us. We must rest in his goodness because notice the next verse, verse number seven. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. 
The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. He is good. Now, I waited to the end of the message to tell you this, one of my favorite parts. Nahum, his name means comfort. See, Nahum was saying, hey, Israel, I know that you are oppressed, but just remember, God is slow to anger, but he is great in power. And the reason I want to tell you this is because, hey, my name even means comfort. And I want to give you the comfort that is only found in God because God is good. And he is a stronghold for us in the day of trouble. The other night we were watching, speaking of C.S. Lewis, we were watching Chronicles of Narnia with our kids and uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And at the very beginning of that movie, if you've seen it, the family is uh, in the, it's the middle of World War II, I believe, and there's bombings that are taking place. And, and, uh, and so what does the family do? They run out and they have a shelter in their front yard and they, they open up that shelter that's in the ground. They all get in that shelter. And uh, my daughter lives. She had never seen that before. She didn't know what that was. And so she asked me, Dad, why, why do they have a hole in their, in their front yard in the ground? Why did they have that? And so I explained to her, you know, this was a war time and, and uh, there was bombings and they went there to be safe. And a lot of people would have these shelters and the shelter to keep you safe. And I just want to tell you today that you have a stronghold. You have a shelter in Jesus Christ. And so when the world is spinning out of control and you feel like you're being attacked from all directions, you can run to Jesus. He is good. He's a stronghold to them that put their trust in him. Today, have you put your trust in him? Are you trusting him? Are you trusting him on a daily basis, walking by faith? 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. To usward, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm so thankful today that God is long-suffering. He wants to give us opportunity after opportunity. He's slow to anger. And maybe today you have a friend or a family member that's not saved, or maybe today you're not saved, and you don't know Jesus Christ. He's long-suffering. He wants to give you an opportunity. He wants to bring you to a place of repentance so that you can have a home in heaven forever so that you can stand before a holy God because he is slow to anger. Let's bow our heads this morning and close our eyes.